The Mormon Expression Podcast is made possible through the support of our listeners. Consider making a donation or purchasing a subscription today at mormonexpression.com. The books you hear discussed on the podcast and others that we recommend can be purchased by clicking on the store link. And to those of you who have already contributed, thanks. All right, welcome back to another uh, special edition of Mormon Expression. This is one of our uh, dummies podcasts. Uh, we're going to tonight tackle the one and only Saturday's Warrior. Who are these children coming down? Coming down like gentle rain through darkened skies. With glory. Uh, so now, now we'll, we'll all be, you know, kind of tearing up. <laughs> All right, we have we have um, a couple of our regulars. First of all, the one and only Zilpha. Hi, Zilpha. Hello, everybody. And uh, Glenn, how are you doing, Glenn? I'm doing great. Thanks. And tonight we have a uh, we brought in a ringer. Uh, we have our our special guest, Travis. Hey, Travis. Hey, hello. Hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, um, okay. Uh, yeah, lifelong Mormon. Um, my mother's side goes back for several generations in the church, back to, you know, handcart Mormons. Uh, my dad was actually a convert. Um, let's see, I'm nine of ten kids. My Ooh. father was military. Oh, sorry, what? <laughs> I just said, wow. Oh, the nine oh. Of ten. but we can talk about that. I mean, Saturday's Warrior kind of sees this shrinking of the family as kind of a crisis yeah. a sort of idea. But anyway, so, but I was part of the, you know, part of the whole large family era of Mormon culture, I guess. Um, but yeah, my father was military, but I'm number nine. So by the time he retired as an Air Force colonel, we moved to Utah. So while my older siblings got the whole military move around and, you know, experience the world, I got the, me and my two sisters got the grow up in Provo, Happy Valley sort of thing. So uh, served a mission in Texas, um, went to BYU in their film program. See, it was a good time to be in the film program. It's while Napoleon Dynamite was uh, coming out and kind of the boom in Mormon cinema. So a lot was going on at the time. Um, let's see. And then I graduated from BYU and came down to Texas to do my graduate work. And uh, I was excited. I've been a Mormon Expression listener from the beginning. So I was excited in, in one of the podcasts, in the live recording podcast, when you talked about you're going to do a Saturday's Warrior episode. And my master's thesis here at grad school explored a lot of Mormon representation. And so I wanted to contribute to the discussion, uh, my studies in, which included an analysis of Saturday's Warrior. Well, great. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. 
Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm a little starstruck, you know, hearing all these voices that I've listened to <laughs> ages. So you'll have to bear with me. I'm like, whoa, all these celebrities. That, that only works if you've never met us in person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you can't imagine, like, uh, I'm sitting here in my pajamas right now. You wouldn't be very starstruck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, what? Oh, what? I'm totally dressed. I'm in my Sunday best. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm at least wearing pants, so so I'm I'm here. Right on. Okay, so it's Saturday's Warrior. Saturday's Warrior, uh, for those who don't know, and, and I'm always amazed at how many uh, letters I get um, or emails I get from people who listen to the podcast who aren't members of the church, and um, all this is sort of new and weird to them. Yes, yeah, Saturday's Warrior is weird. I will concur with that. But, you know, I, I, when I decided to do this podcast months ago, I was worried that I was going to just skewer it. But I have to say right here in the beginning, I have fallen in love again with Saturday's Warrior. Although I have to say it's cornball and it's cheesy and there's some parts of it I just can't stand. Uh, I mean, I just can't stomach. um, But uh, I've grown I've grown to have a soft spot in my heart for Saturday's Warrior. Let, let's get let's get those parts out of the way, John. What what can you not stomach? Like a baby waits for a diaper change. Oh, well, well, we'll we'll get there. Oh, come on. Uh, but uh, so so let's give a little background. Um, Saturday's Warrior there there's was written by a fellow named Doug Stewart who worked at um, at the studios down there in Provo, um, writing for, you know, BYU Productions and for the church things. And I don't know what all he's done in, in his life. Um, but his main claim to fame is that he wrote Saturday's Warrior. And um, he wrote the, the lyrics and the book. Um, and um, the music was written by the one and only Lex D'Alzevedo, who, if you've ever watched a Mormon film, you know, like Testaments or, uh, or um, he did all the scoring for those those animated scripture stories or the living scriptures stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's done some Hollywood work every once in a while. I I've, I've spotted him. I can't remember what movie we were watching movie a year or so ago. And I said, that sounds like Lex. And, um, he's got a very unique sound. I guess everybody does. You can spot John Williams. You can spot Lex, but those two, those two, um, got together in the early seventies. And I think that well, you have to realize in the early 70s, too, within contemporary musical theater, we started to get I mean, what 1970 was Jesus Christ Superstar and and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Godspell. We're getting these uh, contemporary musicals exploring uh, basic Christian themes. So I wonder if that kind of stirred within Mormon culture, just like, oh, we can let's try to apply our own doctrines in this in this way. And so Lex Acevedo and Carolyn Pearson, they did what The Order is Love in 1971, which kind of uh, I think. Terrell Givens and his People of Paradox talked about that's kind of opened the door to uh, this cycle of creating musical theater uh, based on Mormon themes and Saturday's Warrior being the most popular and, and innovative. Yeah, uh, it, on the t- in the same time frame, Carolyn Pearson came up with My Turn on Earth. Uh, right. Uh, there was a follow-up that most people never heard of. We're not going to talk about it much tonight, but Star Child. Um, yeah. Which is a sort of a weirder version of Saturday's Warrior. Uh, it is. It's basically the same story, but just kind of up the stakes a little bit. You know, instead of the couple falling in love and promising to meet each other on Earth, it's basically a guy who not only promises to love and fall in, you know, find each other on Earth, but also to find his kids whose spirits he's promised to be their father in the preexistence and his friend who's not going to be introduced to the gospel until Earth. You know, so really upping the stakes of this same idea of is fulfilling it, promises that you can't remember. Is that a musical as well? 
It's a musical. Uh, Lex Diazavedo didn't do the music, but Doug Stewart wrote the oh. book and lyrics. Okay. And but somebody else did the music. The songs aren't as memorable. They're way too many slow ballads oh. of who am I and what's my identity. You know, I think Saturday's War- Warriors music is much more catchy and, and okay. fun. Yeah, and there's you a know, some film for Starchild. I haven't seen it. I, I assume you have. It's, it's a stage to video film i think hailstone released a a live audience production of it you know and the church went through a wave of releasing uh live audience performances particularly in the 80s when video technology was was cheap and introduced and they realized you know it was you could finance distributing to a niche market like mormondom and so that's where we get the videotaped recordings of my turn on earth and it's a miracle and polly a one woman musical yeah yeah so, but the movie Saturday's Warrior uh, came within that same period as well. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 um, Doug Stewart and, and Alzevedo got together and they wrote the play. And in 1973, it won the Utah Arts Council Playwright Contest. And they did the first version. They rewrote it and then it started rolling out in 1974. Started with um, local stake productions and then it was playing in both California and and Utah and did a run in Salt Lake City. And I think the 1974 cast is the cast that did the original recording that's still kicking around. Um, if you listen to... It's on iTunes. Yeah, you can download it from iTunes. It's one of the few Mormon uh, CDs or LDS-themed musical scores you can get on iTunes. Can you, can so, you download it from the mormonexpression.com store? Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to look, uh, our store connects to Amazon, but I'll, I'll have to see. Okay, all right. So, so the play kicked around. It was in constant production, um, you know, stake productions, and every so often a, a local theater would put it on until 1989 um, when they got together and did the film version, which is what probably most of us are familiar with. Right. Uh, and they kept a lot of the same stage elements. Um, it, so when you, it's, a, it's a film version. It's, it's filmed in a sound studio, um, but it, it really has that same feel of a play. And, you know, you, you were, Travis, you were talking about that a little bit. A lot of the church productions, especially in the 70s that came out, those BYU mm-hmm. short films, they all had that same sort of half quasi-theater, half soundstage feel. So, so very much right. that LDS genre. Right. Well, and apparently Doug Stewart didn't know. I read this in a BYU Studies article. He didn't know it was going to be so studio bound. And so when he saw the final project, it was filmed at the Osmond Studios, if I remember correctly, there in Orem. And so apparently when it came out, he was kind of disappointed. And I think a lot of people in Mormon culture were disappointed, you know, thinking there's going to be a movie of Saturday's Warrior. And we're thinking of what were the movies of the time, Annie and so on, where it incorporates all this live action uh, real locations and we didn't realize it would be another sort of quasi live performance recording but it wasn't it was a studio but doesn't hide that it's a studio the sets are very fragmented maybe they were trying to go for a different kind of effect well, or it was just they wanted it cheaper that's probably all they could afford yeah zilf and i were watching right. the, uh on if you buy at least the millennium edition which we bought at desert book um mm-hmm. uh, they have a making of <laughs> um, done ten years after, so it was done. It was done back in '99 when the making of was done, but um, it's, they filmed it in a month. So, so it, they had a pretty snappy production schedule. Yeah, now, yeah. I can't I, imagine they had a lot of financing, you know, to to put that thing out. But 
Right. Well, and I know in After God's Army, when there was that boom in, in Mormon cinema, uh, I know there were, there were some people, some producers trying to get funding to remake Saturday's Warrior, just kind of as the musical that we all hoped it would be, not this a studio-bound one. But yeah, I love in the documentary how they're like, it's a timeless message and generations are <laughs> rediscovering it. Whereas, you know, even in the 80s when I was watching it, I'm like, what's zero population? You know? <laughs> Every day the world is getting smaller by far bursting at the seams what can we do zero population is the answer my friend without it the rest of us idea it's definitely not not timeless and especially the, the dancing that's <laughs> so, so the, the story well, we all are cougarettes in the pre-existence you know slow <laughs> slow and then those spastic you know throwing your arms all over the place for a brief moment yeah uh, yeah so so the basic story for those who haven't had the privilege of seeing it, it, it it's it's a play that begins in the pre-existence and there are three storylines um the, the main story throughout the whole play is about um, Jimmy. Jimmy, oh Jimmy, don't listen to him. Um, Jimmy is the oldest. Well, he has a twin sister named Pam of a family that currently has six children. And he, I think at the time of the play, he's 18. He and Pam are 18. And there's sort of a dilemma going on about number seven. The story is they were all together in the preexistence, and there's this number seven named Emily who's supposed to come. But Jimmy is having trouble with the church. So that's, that's story A, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Story B is, of course, the love story between Todd and Julie. Julie being Jimmy's younger um, sister. I've seen that smile somewhere before. I've heard that voice before. It, it seems, seems we've talked like this before. Todd and Julie had committed themselves in the pre-existence. They said they had loved each other for zillions of years, I think it says in the, uh, in the actual script. Um, maybe, maybe that was the missionaries who said zillions of years. I don't, somebody said zillions. <laughs> they loved each other for zillions yeah. of years, too. Uh, so so, so um, Todd is, was born a non-member, so he has to somehow find his way back to the church and find his way to Julie. And the third story, the, the C storyline, are the two missionaries, Kessler and Green, Wally Kessler and um, I don't know what Harold. Harold, Harold Green. Green. Right. right. And, um, and they're the extraordinary missionaries who are going to convert thousands, and, and they're, they're singing all about that in the preexistence. Bearing swords of truth, we plunder, slicing wicked men asunder. We are something of a wonder in our humble way. So we, we start out with the play with all these guys in the preexistence sort of um, talking about their life. And this is probably the most controversial part of Saturday's Warrior. <laughs> what well, part? The well, missionaries? Well, well in, in addition, what I read was that when it first came out, church leaders were very critical of A, the false doctrines, and B, the trivialization of uh, missionary work because they're kind of the goofs. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. And they, you know, they show the 
they project at one point they project the the old film strip movies on uh, um, Elder Green's copious belly. Um, right. So, but yeah, they kind of they're the comic relief, the, the two missionaries. Yeah. Um, well, in now, addition to a few of the kids in the family. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's all sorts of goofball elements. But I want to before we go into, into that, I want to. You said um, false doctrine. Is that what the word you used? Um, yes. I can't for the life of me find a false doctrine. I've heard that said all over and over again. There, um, um, Stewart makes some um, conclusions. That don't necessarily aren't necessarily stated in the scriptures, but I can't come up with anything in there that's false, that's contradictory to other doctrine. Can any of you? Am I okay? Just in the boat. Well, I think. Well, wasn't that a concern that, that we were capable of of falling in love as spirit? I mean, I mean, I guess Stuart had to make a lot of assumptions about yes, or be creative about a Mormon, the Mormon cosmos, in order to create a story. So. Um, but I, I think what he does, and he does this, uh, I think, to a greater extent within Star Child, is uh, kind of increasing the importance of obedience to uh, gospel principles because it's no longer about being obedient. It's about this seventh child that you promised would be in your family. And because you aren't obeying the gospel, this seventh child is going to be sent to another family. So, so that's one. So that's one of them. First of all, the the assumption that we can fall in love and make promises, and uh, which creates a familiar spirit on Earth of different things like who we fall in love with, uh, but also that idea of not a of spirits being sent to the wrong people. Yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> uh, but but you know, once again, there's but, uh, you know, luckily the nurse switched them back. I guess that one lady, you know, was able yeah, to. Yeah. That- yeah, the, the joke was that there's there's a matron um, who's who's um, shepherding the the jump off. A butch lesbian stereotype. I I don't know. I kudos to them for trying to come up with diversity. I mean, it's this large woman wearing purple with what the the mullet. I I was surprised. I was like, wow, they discovered the butch uh, lesbian stereotype. You I know, know within cinema. It's just out of out of date. I think it was okay. For the time. Okay. I thought she was just mocking. okay. They call her the matron, actually. Uh, in she's the, mean. It's, she was the pre-existence matron. They called her in the in the in, in the, the making, making of. of sec- and I section. figured she was just modeled after one of those pushy temple workers <laughs> who's always hurrying you know, <laughs> off, 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 off. You know, you can't hang out in the celestial room. There's another group coming through. That's who I thought. They were. <laughs> but I, 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 I like the, the butch reading. That's great. Um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, let, let's talk, let's pause a little bit and talk about the doctrine, the LDS doctrine of foreordination. Um, you know, uh, the, the LDS doctrine has avoided the trappings of the whole Calvinist sort of, um, um, well, did I say foreordination? It's, uh, what do we call it in the LDS church? We don't call Pre, it foreordained. Pre-ordained. Pre-ordained and and. Yeah, preordained. Okay, yeah, foreordained. Yeah, as opposed to predestined. So, so the, okay. the regular doctrine of predestination means, you know, you're 
there are those who are selected to be saved and there are those who are not selected to be saved. And that's just sort of outside your action. You can't save yourself by works. Um, the mm. LDS, especially coming from the Pearl Great Prize, introduced the concept of that you people, especially who have offices, were ordained to those offices in the pre-existence. So, so, so things that happen, and this doctrine gets extended. I've heard it extended down to people being ordained to be like deacons and class mm -hmm. presidents. I've been taught in my life that every <laughs> calling that you have in life, you were preordained in the preexistence as a spirit to all those sort of all those sort of callings. So, I think that's the doctrinal basis that Stuart is jumping off of for the script. Well, and also, I I think um, the love story speaks to people because a lot of times when you fall in love, there are these feelings of familiarity and, you know, like kind of destiny, meant to be together kind of feelings. And so he, he uses that um, as part of this script and, and the doctrine that he's coming up with. Because, it, I mean, it, it, it feels like that when you fall in love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, people know that, that they had relationships or whatever in the, in the preexistence. And we should also mention the other teaching, which, which, which delved into a lot of racism, the, the idea that there were, that there were some spirits in the preexistence who were more valiant. Of course, we know right. that there was a war in heaven and a third were cast out for rebellion. But um, for years and years, um, a lot of brethren taught, it was really common teaching in the church. I even heard it in seminary in the eighties. So um, that, People who had like dark skin uh, were not as valiant in the preexistence, and that was the mark. Or people who were, you know, born in, you know, Mongolia or whatever. The reason was because they weren't as valiant. And normally, it's not taught negatively anymore, but it's taught positively. They go to they go to the youth and say, you know, you are the most select of all. You know, you are saved for these last days. And that, that, I mean, that, that's 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 where the phrase born the Saturday's the warrior, covenant, um, right? Yeah, and, and the the lyric of the song is, uh, "These are the few." These are the few the warriors saved for Saturday to come the last day of the world. These are they on Saturday. These are the strong the warriors rising in their might to win the battle raging in the hearts of men on Saturday. But this idea of it being a few kind of elect elite number. Which I believe is one reason that this show uh, was so has survived despite initial criticism from church leaders. I, the youth really responded to it. And I think because it flatters them as, you know, the special spirits. And I wonder if this is still being taught today. I was taught it in seminary where uh, my teacher was like, when people find out that you were lived during President Hinckley's time, a hush will come over and they'll be like, oh, you were one of those, you know, and you really felt this special quality about, yeah. wow, I must have really done something right in the pre-existence. And, and the other the other part of that are you, you hear every once in a while the stories of someone getting a patriarchal blessing that said that they were one of the generals in heaven mm -hmm. uh, during the, the war against Satan. You know, so this this idea of, of being preordained as an elect few person, you know, one of the few people to come down and actually be a strong warrior in the latter days. Uh, is uh, could we call it a folk doctrine, or is it is it actually official canonized doctrine? Where where does it fall on that spectrum, John? 
Well, I, I think the canon is so limited that you'd probably call it a folk doctrine. I, I, and, and I don't mean folk doctrine as in, and of course, you, I, I think you'll agree with me, Glenn, that doesn't mean it's not a real doctrine of the church, not something really people believe, but it's just sort of grassroots. You can't trace it back to like a chapter and verse, yeah. but it's something that mm-hmm. people believe. And, and I, I do, it follows from those teachings, especially in the Pearl Great Price. Yeah, yeah. I have a, I have a Benson talk. I found one for the, uh, for the chapter that I wrote where he introduced this idea of like, we, where Ezra Taft Benson was like talking to the youth that we have every confidence in you. You were the valiant spirits reserved for this special time. Yeah. Uh, being the... So it, it, it so it came from church leaders is basically what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a couple main themes that show up in the play. We talked about the sort of the the main storylines. One of the themes is, and I think we've already referred to it, is zero population growth. Legalized abortion is the answer, my friend. Without it, there is no peace of mind. Um, and this is the tension between LDS large families. And you have to remember, we have to go back to 1974. And in 1974, the church was still preaching from the pulpit that birth control was evil. And, right. um, and you could get in trouble from bishops for, for um, practicing birth control. Of course, it's still in the handbook of instructions that if you get a tubal or you get a vasectomy, that um, it's what That's strongly discouraged, strongly discouraged by the church. So, and if you read any of the statements they've made over the past four or five or ten years or whatever it is on birth control, they're still very carefully worded to say people should have as many children as they're capable. You know, the church won't say, "Hey, just, just, you know, it's, it's all right to have few." So, so, and you know, I, I there in one of the scenes early on, they're sitting there joking around about um, 1.7 children, and then they almost say the word abortion. And then somebody stops like, them. Oh, don't say that word. Yeah, that's yeah. horrible. Mm-hmm. So, so that's mm-hmm. that's the the you know the and of course we were talking, um, and this zero population growth song where where um, uh, Jimmy's friends are all sort of teasing him. Um, you know, that's 1973 was the uh, was the gasoline crisis, and it was a it was a big strong time for. Reducing you know, the, the population. Limited resources, yeah. Um, so, so there's that tension between the LDS culture of having these great big families and, of course, the, what the, the world was teaching, and that, that plays out in, the, in this theme. And, and this makes it clear that, you know, if, if you don't have all the children that you can, then you might be leaving someone out that you were... Um, destined to have in your family. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just, you know, have as many children as you can take care of, but have as many as you can, because you don't know who you're, you know, who you're supposed to right. have. You're have not, you're not just disobeying the commandments. You're cheating somebody out of what they, what they were foreordained to have. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's still a, a pretty popular belief that people have that there are, that, that their spirit children even that haven't been born yet are a part of their lives somehow. And, you know, that they can sense their influence, you know, so, so this idea that there could be, you know, like in, in uh, Saturday's warrior, this Emily spirit child who hasn't been born to the family yet, but she's still kind of watching um, involved, excited. She wants to come down to this family and she's, she's very invested. And you'll have to remind me with, with, with the plot because I, I'm more familiar with it from, 
the the songs than actually watching the play. But does the mother get pregnant with with Emily and then there, there's a miscarriage or something or does no Emily's born at the end. She's born at the end after you know Jimmy comes back and is received welcomed back to the fold as the prodigal son. And so at uh, the very end, she, Emily is born okay. and Jimmy is able to participate in the delivery, sort but, of as his acceptance and welcoming to the world. It was okay. implied that, that there was a miscarriage. There was either or miscarriage that, or, or she was trying to go early. Was the thing she was you know the the stereotypical. What was it? The matron lady uh, where Emily was running onto the platform trying to get down to earth. But, you know, it was only three months along and Jimmy was uh, was being a dork and had been physically beaten by his father. Yeah. You know, I was shocked when I watched the movie again. And, you know, he clocks Jimmy in the. Yeah. Yeah. Who clocks Jimmy? But the dad. dad. Oh, does he? Right, right, and it's not apparent. Right, and that what's significant? It's not you know, it's not perceived as unfavorable, you know, or <laughs> it diminishes the father in any way. I mean, it's Jimmy as right. He deserved it. He was a weakling who had to kind of weasel, weasel his way back into his father's good graces at the funeral. So did he? Did he say? Didn't we love him? Whap. <laughs> <laughs> didn't we raise him good? Zap. Pow. Understand? Boom. Yeah. Boom. When he was just a little boy, things were different then. Yeah, this, um, this is this is a key pivotal scene in the play, and it brings to the next big theme on, especially masculinity and parental roles. But but during the scene, Jimmy has talked. Jimmy has, has spent time with his friends. They've been teasing about zero population, and they're all sitting there. Um, it's his it's his birthday. He comes in for his for his birthday, and they they make these like homemade presents for him, and. Um, then his his parents announce that they're going to have another child, and Jimmy, of course, um, starts in a, an argument with his parents. And Jimmy says um, to his mother, "What is it? Why don't you just drop a litter?" Yeah, um, yeah. right. At which point, his father clocks him. It, it's, <laughs> it's a violent. It's a rather violent scene. He 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 kisses. He hits him in the kisser. Hmm. Um, and then the scene that follows, you know, Jimmy runs out. It, it's, you know, you hear, I think you hear thunder. No, wait, thunder comes later. I can't remember. But then the matron takes Emily away from the jump off point. Right. Because the mother grabs her, yeah, her stomach, you know, that something's happening with the baby. And so, and so it jumps to the preexistence that Emily's trying to be born early. Uh, which uh, which plays into the assum- uh, another one of the things, kind of the doctrinal assumptions Doug Stewart had to grapple with. When does the spirit enter the body? And within the Saturday's warrior worldview, it's at birth. Mm. Right. Whereas doctrine, right? As doctrinally, we don't know. I mean, I think is it the handbook that says we don't know when the spirit enters the body. That's why their work isn't done for stillborn babies or yes. or miscarried embryos. Yeah, yes. yeah. Kessler was about to be born, one of the missionaries, and he said he was screaming down an incredible tube of light, and then bam, and he's back in the preexistence. And she said, "Yeah, mm. that that was a false alarm. Uh, Happens all the time." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's let's talk about a dad a little bit. Um, through, through, through the whole movie, uh, the guy to me, the actor, and he he's played in several Mormon things. Looks like the Muppet Sam the Eagle. He, <laughs> he's the um, typical Mormon father. He has a professional yeah. frown, but he he is just clear that he's in charge. There's there's a scene early on where all the kids are are 
horsing around, and then he t- he snaps at him and says, "Stop!" And they'll they'll stop. They said, "Okay." Right. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know he's got the jaw jutting out, and that that very authoritative, "I'm in charge" sort of guy, and. He manhandles Jimmy twice and then punches him once. Um, so there's that. There's this real sort of I am the um, king here, the alpha. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and and it's even striking. And this is what I looked at in my uh, uh, in my research was the ways in which. Uh, the mother and father really embody this these 19th century notions of sexuality and that there's like true manhood and true womanhood. And you find these in in Mormon doctrine with the idea of in, of gods who are gendered, a heavenly father and heavenly mother. So there's got to be an eternal and perfect way to perform gender. And so and we see that with Julie and Todd with their love story before they can come together. They've really got to discover who they are and embody these roles that the parents embody where the mother is ultra passivity and the father is you know active authoritarian i mean there's one scene where jimmy asks his mother a question and the father answers and then the mother becomes this third person in their interplay she just becomes invisible in this uh, conversation that initially started with her yeah that that's fascinating i find the the whole thing to be not very flattering at all to women the the Carol the the mother the character is a doormat. I guess we failed. She has very few lines. She mostly just sits and smiles. She's basically a a, a baby tube. You she know? doesn't really well, smile. I, she 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 looks concerned. Yeah. Uh, and at the birthday party, she's equated with the children. It becomes a dialogue between the father and Jimmy. And, you know, and the mother's you know, cowering over with the children over, right. you know, sad that the party's gone all awry. So, so she, she's a complete doormat, a complete non-character other than, you know, she just sings with and, and, and loves the father. But also Julie is a troublesome character for me. Because, um, you know, at, we, we, we get introduced to her as, as Wally Kessler is going off on his mission. And the, there's a song, Will You Wait For Me? And, you know, and she says, of course I'll wait for you, you know. Why, Wally Kessler, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I've given you the best years of my life. I've stood here through it all, through short and fat and tall, through thick and thin and rain and snow and ice. And now you're questioning my integrity. Is that any way to treat your future wife? Oh, and I love their skirts in the movie. And I like <laughs> any of their shirts. Oh, well, there's, there's, <laughs> Big some, there's some fashion issues. But so, so Julie, you know, um, you know, she's that, that I wonder if, if, if the guys who in charge this had some problems with women, because then her character immediately, like it goes this montage of, of uh, or a scene later of them writing back and forth. And it, and I think it implies like a month two later weeks. or two weeks two later, weeks. she dear John's him and nope. she's engaged to, to another guy. Boys are so insensitive, aren't they, Julie? The hand of, of a lonely person reaches out to you for understanding and, they expect you to turn him away. Wally would understand, wouldn't he? Well, I did pledge my heart to him, didn't I? But that doesn't mean I have to put myself in cold storage for two years. She doesn't dear John him yet. She starts 
going out with other guys as a oh. friend, but really it's not just a friend. Yeah, kind of the, thing. the song is just a friend slash Dear He's John. Just a friend like those she counts and doesn't. Right. So it starts out saying, "Hey, I'm just going out with friends," um, and then and then it turns into that she's she's and he Kessler gets this letter and says she's been engaged for two months. <laughs> oh, Elder, I'm ruined. Two months she's been engaged. Two months. Maybe it's for the best, Elder. No baptisms and now this. Oh, but then what would you know about love, Elder, or the pain I'm going through? And to think I trusted her. So, so, and then there's this guy she's engaged to for part of the, who is Sir not appearing in this film. Um, he's never, he's never there until she meets Todd at the airport and they immediately fall in love. I've seen that smile somewhere before. I've heard that voice before. But my point is that Julie is a flighty, witless. Well, she's a teenager. But but so are there other well, teenagers. Actually, is she really a teenager because she was engaged and like she was going to get married in three days and she changed her mind. So she couldn't have been like 16 or 17. She had to be at least what? 18. And then that, that begs the question, how old was this little Jimmy that they were like, oh, stay home with us? Well, <laughs> adult. Well, that, that aside, I still want to, I still want to underline the point. That all the negative stereotypes of Mormon women are played out in this play. That the the two main women characters, Carol and, and Julie, are both laughable um, caricatures oh, yeah. of, of womanhood. John, you, you're completely right. overlooking like? Pam, because Pam is oh, the, is true. Pam Doesn't is the voice. Anything. No, 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 no. Pam oh. is the voice of reason. She's the one that. No, she, no, no, she's, she's the, the voice of faith. Faith, wait, wait, wait. Faith. Okay, faith. all right, faith, faith. You got me. You got me. Not reason, faith. But she's the one that. But it's Mormon reason. Okay. Will you give me Mormon reason? But she's the only. She's only the voice of faith as Jimmy, as an active character, allows her to be. I mean, this this is what we see in films generally within a patriarchal society: is the female characters aren't given a whole lot to do. I mean, they're sort of there to react against the male characters who are the protagonists, uh, which is interesting. Something I noticed within the film, that opening montage of like Saturdays, these are the few, the war I had to sing. I think everybody sung but me. So I had to sing. That song. <laughs> um, but you said, but with the montage, the vast majority of the kids that they show are girls. And I was like, is this speaking to this idea that uh, women are more naturally spiritual? That's why men, need the priesthood uh, are they the more valiant spirits but then it goes on to a story that really uh focuses on the young men but but, but come on let's get back to pam for a minute here because she's the one that gives the song line upon line precept on precept and she says jimmy just look at the stars and how they appear one at a time. And wouldn't it be a shame, you know, to throw away all of this beauty in the universe because you can't see it all at once? And she says, Jimmy, your problem is you want all the answers right now. That's what I mean when I say she's the voice of, of reason. And I can put that in quotation marks. But, you know, mm -hmm. she, she's, she's the voice of the faithful Mormons that are looking at this guy who's sympathetic to liberal issues and going, yeah, you know, you're off base. Your problem is that you want all the answers at once. Excuse the example, but Sir Galahad didn't find the Holy Grail in one afternoon. It's like watching the stars appear at night. First, just one little light shines over there in the western sky. And then another, and another, until finally, well look for yourself, Jimmy. 
a whole wonderful blazing universe that began with just one little star. Line upon line, precept on precept, that is how he lifts us, that is how he teaches his children. But to underline my point again from before, the second underline, she is put in a wheelchair. You know, so, so she, she's, she's more spiritual, so she's better than Jimmy. So they have to cripple her. Um, and then she dies. No, but that's just mm-hmm. to show that she's, she's got this trial of faith and she's like Job. She doesn't complain against it. She doesn't let that trial of faith get her down. She stays happy and faithful. If we are patient, we shall see how the pieces fit together in harmony. We'll know who we are in this big universe, and then we'll live with him forever and ever. But could it be like what what's the most important point of the show is for Jimmy to come back? I mean, it's it's the male character who's the focus. And so it's the cost of the female in order to make that happen, her her death, which I think is was one of the main complaints of false doctrine was that she goes back to the preexistence and, you know, to talk with Emily. Yeah. Now, do we have do we have record of that happen? Is the spirit world embody the preexistence? Uh, I, I don't know. think that, so. Yeah, that, 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 that is a uh, doctrinal problem. There. It's it's not necessarily a false doctrine. There's just, there's just no no okay. basis for it. Now I mm-hmm. do want to point out that like all good or bad movies, there was a novelization of this thing that was done and, and done in '82. Now Doug Stewart did his own novelization of Star Child. But there was a woman, and I wish I could remember her name. I'll I'll put it up on the on the post. Who wrote a book in '82 in Star Child? I mean, of of uh, Saturday's Warrior, and she completely turned the story inside out. The men are all flawed, and the women are all strong. She completely turned the the story on its head. So that's that's a, a fascinating aside. If you're really into Star uh, Saturday's Warrior, I would suggest you go out and read the book. But um, huh. so so there there at least was one woman who had a feminist reaction to the. Uh, to the misogyny of the film, of the play, I mean. But you did express concern for Julie. I think what the film does show is that, as flighty as she may be, at least she's on the path to become more like her mother. I mean, her mother is training her in sewing lessons or something so she can make her dress. Uh, And Julie does express that she wants to be the perfect housekeeper and a fabulous cook, uh, envisioning her future relationship with Peter. Yeah, and the so guy she like, dear John for Wally. Oh yeah, and when she wrote to to was it to Wally? And I'm now how can I make myself worthy of you? Yeah, she's <laughs> I'm making myself worthy of you. And in the scene, she talks about homemaking skills. So, mm-hmm. and that's that's a classic Mormon sort of conceptualization to be to 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 you know if you are a good sewer and you can soak beans, then you're worthy of somebody's love. Well, it, and you know, go when ahead, I saw. When I saw those scenes with Julie, I remembered being a teenager and and being very well acquainted with this movie, um, kind of looking at Julie as kind of a role model. Really? Uh, yeah, really? Well, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be like her. I wanted to have boyfriends and be In engaged dozens. and have a missionary who wanted me. <laughs> By the dozens. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> so, Just I mean, friends. 
My sister just lip sync. Oh, excuse me, Zilpha. Well, her kind of um, trying to win a man is very um, prevalent in the psychology of Mormon young women. Trying to win that man. And Mm. it might not just be Mormons, but that's my perspective because that's how, that's where I grew up. But I wish I would have known that back then. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) I missed out. Yeah, well, you had to be, you know, on the right track to be worthy what are you implying? Well, they foreground that even more in Star Child. I mean, there's a whole musical number in the pre-existence of being like hunting for a man. So I, I guess there were more people who responded to it that they included it in the sequel. So more people than just you, Zilpha. Yeah, and and I was also thinking of the all the people who would relate to different characters in this film. So you have the the lovebirds. So people who are romantics would look at Todd and Julie and say, oh, that, that's what I want, or, or that's what we have, or that kind of thing. Um, and then people who have uh, a, a handicap or someone they know with a handicap would say, oh, you know, this is such a good example, and this is our, 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 our child with this disability is really a special spirit, you know? And, and of course, that was prevalent anyway. Um, I've, well, I've got to ask something about. I've got to ask something before we get off of Julie. How, how much of this is like self, like self-reflective satire, like Mormons parodying their own Mormon stereotypes? Because I, I get the sense with with you know the Elder Wally Kessel or in our humble way the uh, you know Julie just a friend like those she counts in dozens you know the whole dear John thing that we're kind of making fun of ourselves in it that. is definitely yeah and no, I think that's a great element of the play and it's one of the things that I like um, it just I think in juxtaposition to dad dad is too sacred to parody you know mm-hmm. um, but the rest of the, everything else is up for grabs really and, and I, D- dad's the one with the big nose they were all singing about dad's big nose it's a wreck Well, my thesis advisor was like, are they trying to be the Osmonds? I mean, he was just bewildered by this whole movie. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that scene, not, not a Mormon, by the way. The, the scene we're talking about, it happens early in the play, and it's just it goes with nothing. They all are appearing on the soundstage because they won Family of the Year Award, and they sing this song about Dad's nose. It has nothing to do with anything else. And it's just there in the, in the play. Well, it does give his friends, uh, uh, you know, because they a say, reason to oh, laugh at. Yeah. Yeah. We saw your big family on TV. And then he's like, oh, well, they do it with we do it with mirrors. And oh, that's yeah. the that's one of the dirty jokes. Yeah, there's we a couple, do it with mirrors. There's a couple dirty jokes in there. Yeah. I was surprised how edgy those were for wholesome entertainment. <laughs> now, this I have to tell an apocryphal story um, that I can't I was going to verify, but uh Everybody should note that this it might be urban legend. Um, uh, apparently, um, and I've heard it as Ezra Taft Benson. Somebody else was saying um, Kimball, but I, it doesn't sound like Kimball. Um, the, the story goes that it was 74 or 75 when the play was popular, and Benson and his clan went to see it. 
And during one of the scenes with the gang, either the dance or when they were joking with him, um, old Ezra Benson got up and walked out. His family, not knowing what to do, all picked up and followed him out of the play. Um, I found that online as well, but I don't know if it's true or not. I, I've, I've come across it before. Uh, so, so there you go. Um, uh, apparently, the 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 um, the actors were crestfallen, but um, <laughs> I bet. So yeah, so so there is that the edgy the edgy dancers and the and the edgy. But John, uh, one more thing I noticed about, or what I interpreted about the father's no song is that it immediately reinforces the father as the authority. He's the unifying trait of this family. They all, you know, mom's even got it, his nose. And that's, (laughs) and that line's an afterthought. You can barely hear it. And so asserting that they've all got daddy's nose. He's the patriarch. He's. He's the unifying factor of this group. Ah, yeah, good point. All right, let's talk a little bit about Todd. Um, I loved Todd. <laughs> he, he, was a, he was a cutie. Um, so, I, I liked his character. Um, his so, so, so Todd is the guy who was Julie's love interest in the pre-existence. And um, we run into him in the park where he's, he sits and sketches drawings of people walking by. But not as they are. As they could be. Yes. I take some paper in my hand And with a pencil draw a man The dream of what I'd really, really like to be A man with courage in his brow Who's licked his doubts and fears somehow A warrior of great nobility But who am I just a wandering kid? Now, the the question Zilf and I were talking about (laughs) when we watched the movie is he pines to be um, the guy that he wants to be. Yeah, but then if he he pines to be that, then doesn't that mean that he is that? Well, how is he not that guy? Yeah, I don't don't understand that. He's not confident. (laughs) He, he doesn't have the answers. He, he just has questions. That That's why. Mm. He, he, he needs to get plugged into the place that has the answers to the questions that he has. And that's what he's yeah. missing. And, and th- this, this is another interesting point because a, a lot of the literature that deals with the outside world from the time um, wasn't really focused on secular humanism and atheism. And there's that kind of undertone there in, in the play, which is sort of progressive for, for, for the time. You know, normally when you're dealing with anti-Mormons, it's always a caricature of some sort of Protestant um, preacher or, or whatever. But, you know, they're really kind of struggling with issues that people are still struggling with today in the church, uh, you know, of, of, um, of secularism, um, Jimmy especially. But, you know, I, I don't see what Todd's yeah, problem is. They, they had those stereotypes of Jimmy's friends and, you know, they were partying and they were sleeping around and they were wearing skimpy clothes and doing the you know the rock and roll kind of dance and and they littered in the park well i mean you know you've only got (laughs) everybody has to be a character stage you know so so if you're i I thought todd that's what i liked about todd is he was more subtle he was more um there was more to his character yeah yeah 
uh, until uh, you know he had depth and he had some great songs um the paper dream the, you know the the paper dream where he sings about wanting to be the and and, and I, I think it's one of the better songs yeah. in the production but still the papers in my hand and every day i sketch the man who knows the truth and what life's all about my conscience says i should be him I guess I could at least begin The chances are I'd probably strike out <laughs> Yeah I I, I think you know you kind of skipped over Jimmy to 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 get to Todd I I I I understand Todd best as a juxtaposition to Jimmy where like Jimmy's Jimmy's a guy that is born, you know, from from the Mormon perspective, he's born into everything. Everything that he needs, he has right there. He's got the great supportive family that they they promised to pull together in the pre-existence and here they are pulling together even if it's just a cheesy corny song about dad's nose, you know, he's got it. The the you know, the the gospel that answers all of the questions that life has, he's got it. But where he starts to stray, and you'll have to help me again because I'm just going by the songs, but where he starts to stray is that he starts sympathizing with these liberal ideas. And he starts questioning what he has and thinking that he's going to find answers outside of his family and outside of his church. And and that's where he kind of eventually wanders into to Todd's world. And, and Todd's got almost the opposite, where... He's born into nothing, but he's looking for something. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they kind of intersect that way. Yeah. And he, and he, and he meets Jimmy in the park and he said, and he, and he draws Jimmy with direction in his eyes. And, and he says, there's something that, you know, that you're not telling me mm. isn't, Yeah, yeah. I, I can tell. <laughs> and Jimmy's like, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. And isn't that right after, uh, uh, Jimmy gets the phone call that Pam has 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 passed on. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's well. Wait, no, I don't think he got that call yet. Oh, okay. Well, it might be. Well, I think he just read. He was reading Pam's letter that she was in the hospital, and Ernie had one of the other brothers had given her lizards and whatever else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But showing that he missed his family. But Todd, his drawings, he describes them as like great and noble warriors. And again, my thesis advisor, who was who knew nothing about Mormonism or was confused about this film, was just like, "What? Why this emphasis on violent imagery? I don't get this push for swords and shields and, yeah, and warriors." Yeah. And to give Jimmy this this the sword and the shield, and he was going to be uh, a great knight. It, it, is it? it just like to affirm sex as and men are supposed to be this way and women are supposed to be this way and we will ensure it by force sort of. Yeah, I don't know. It is uh, a common theme. I mean, EFY, they, they, they go back to this, this well all the time of that, that violent image. You hear it, you know, the putting on the armor of God, which you hear other Christians latch onto, but it seems the Mormons really like the, the, you know, the metaphor of the battle against the earth and, and, and maybe it goes to that siege mentality that came back from the, you know the persecutions in 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 Missouri and Nauvoo, and then the isolation in Salt Lake. Maybe it's got roots all the way back to that. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, well, and I think it's, and I mean, certain... we were already fighting before we got here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the war in heaven. And I think, Glenn, was it you talking about in the New Mormon ad uh, podcast where, right, it's this is it, this is a war we're fighting, and which occurred yeah. with Prop Eight. I mean, yeah. it's not just it's obeying the prophet. It, prophet, it's fighting this evil in the world that uh, challenges notions of of gender and sexuality. Yeah. Have you all seen the art? You can get it at Desert Book. I think it's online. I'll try to link to it where um, it, it shows missionaries in their apartment getting ready and then in the mirror or, you know, you can see in their reflection and they're like suiting up like um, oh, centurions with... going off to <laughs> the Hittites. But, or, <laughs> yeah, so, and there's, a, there's a several of those in the same teeth where they're putting on like, mm-hmm. yeah, this, these violent implements of warfare. You know, John, a few weeks back we did this podcast on Mormon expressions and one that we didn't talk about, but but I, I see really applicable here is eternal perspective. And, you know, one, one thing where I see Saturday's Warrior having a, a real strong contribution to, to the culture is making this eternal perspective very clear. And, you know, the, the eternal perspective is think back that we – we used to be in the pre-existence, and in order to really um, conquer evil and continue this uh, war that was started there against evil, um, we must learn what what is what does the song say here? We, we they, they must learn why they're here and who they are. You know that's like the main conflict mm-hmm. of Saturday's Warrior that we're all these people that have forgotten who we really are, and so. You know, we know because we're members of the church. This is our great gift, and and we have to go and help other people understand who they are, and then we move on with uh, eternal progression. But if if you're able to have this eternal perspective and see that there's a pre-existence and then a mortality, and then you know there's this whole God's plan that stretches on for eternities, then you know little issues like uh, abortion or um, you know. Injustice of man towards man don't become yeah. such big issues that you get hung up on. You know, you hear people say, "Oh, he's just hung up on that," because you got to look at it from the eternal perspective. Does that does that make any sense? No, I, I agree a hundred percent. You know, Pam says when she's talking to Jimmy, you know, your problem is you want all the answers at once, right? Before mm-hmm. line up online, and I think it's it, it's Jimmy who near the end says it all fits together now. Yeah, and that's that's a recurring theme that. And this is where sort of Saturday's Warrior takes that Mormon idea of, you know, our eternal destiny and our, you know, preexistence and pushes it to the next level because it says if you just sort of figured out who you were, because one of the themes of the play is you're supposed to figure out what it is you were meant to do. Yeah. I mean, that's Julie's problem. The reason she's so flighty is because she wants to get married, but she hasn't met Todd yet, who is her eternal companion. Everybody Mm -hmm. in BYU knows that's code for you know, what you tell girls you, you're trying to hook up with. But so, 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 so they're all trying to figure out this, what they're supposed to do. And they don't feel right until they fall into that slot. But the strange thing is that it's such a big deal for Julie and Todd um, in the preexistence and then trying to find each other in the earth life. But somehow everybody else, and of course it's just a place so they can't address everybody, but you know, you think about Pam, okay. Where's her eternal companion? That's never addressed. Doesn't she deserve or, you know, wouldn't somebody fall in love with her in the preexistence? Where, where is he? Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, so the culmination, the song that they sing, um, that Todd and Julie sing, is called Feelings of Forever, um, which I think is sort of the, it's the... Something's at the gate and Yes, this song has some very bizarre lyrics. Um, <laughs> um, we reach for what we were before we were. Yeah, the, 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 the refrain, or whatever it's called, says, um, something's at the gate and rushing through. All the rusty chains of time can't hold it back. <laughs> Memory of our former life. That we knew. That we knew. <laughs> Feelings are so strong and coming through. So, and then, but then he said, but then they sing to each other like they're singing to each other, but they haven't even met yet. I recall the morning you arose. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 yeah there's some things that just don't fit. There is, for those who've been to BYU, I'd assume the Institute's are the same way. There is this hyper-romanticized view of, of love that way, and I'm afraid it disappoints a lot of people because, you know, when two, six months later she gets up in the middle of the night and catches him looking at porn, the whole thing comes, comes <laughs> Because this was this romanticized view. Well, of, he doesn't have to get porn. All he has to do is leave a dirty dish towel on the counter or something like that. Oh, ouch. Yeah, yeah. get real. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 you know, my, my whole Julian Todd thing is this, is this theme of this romantic destiny. Definitely. Which does play out in, in Mormon culture, especially with young and people. And that's what I was trying to express is that that's what I was looking for. I mean, I could feel that. I could feel luckily that. Luckily, you found it. Romantic, yeah. Rom uh, luckily, I got over that before I got <laughs> to you. <laughs> but you know, that's interesting. But I don't know, Zilpha. Was it? Uh, were you feeling that because of this idea of Saturday's Warrior? I mean, was yeah. it Saturday's Warrior that really stimulated this idea within the culture? I think this is what Saturday's Warriors importance is is because this i it's really pervades our culture i mean even within later mormon cinema post god's army i mean all these movies drop little references to saturday's warrior as if if you're part of the culture you have to know these yeah, yeah so i don't think there's anything as um uh you know that that influenced me as much as a teenager than saturday's warrior and we, we not just you your whole family oh my gosh my my family had our own Emily. My mom was 42. We already had six kids, and the oldest was uh, six. And so um, Emily, I mean, to be clear, your, yes. your youngest sister, who fortunately we named go by, her Emily. Named her Emily after Emily. Really? Yes. It was not coincident. Coincidence. It was intentional. <laughs> it was foreordained. Yeah. That, well, that's you know that's the idea that Saturday's Warrior fed my family. And she was number but see what's also his number oh, sorry what but what's sad though is the those seven kids in the beginning they sing that song like what'll you do if i stutter a lot you know they all have these fears about earth life and then for each of those kids all of those fears come true i that girl is dumb the way she was afraid of <laughs> pam can't dance yeah. uh, jimmy loses his way i mean they all yeah, have these ideas of like what if this happens well you gotta think back all right try to remember when you were in the pre-existence so <laughs> we all sit here this great plan and we cheer and we throw out those one-third bastards and we're ready to go and then you're sitting there in the clouds and you start watching human history unfold the bloodbath and horror that happens between, you know, Adam to now, 
man, you'd be scared out of your mind to come to this this world, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it also, going back to Julie and Pam and notions of gender, it's it was telling that their fear was that they would be ugly. Oh, Whereas I- Todd and Jimmy are both thinking about all these possibilities of Earth life and all that they can do. And both Pam and Julie are like, what if I'm ugly? Or what, what if, if I'm have- just a sweet spirit? Yeah, what if I have nothing but a sweet spirit? Right. Yeah, in one of the songs, she says, what if I'm plain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I I, I do want to talk a little bit a little bit more about that romantic, um, that that hyperized romantic love that um, is in the church and juxtapose it to the early church. Is this a reaction, sort of a way to fill the void after polygamy died? Because <laughs> the, the romantic love that people um um fashion in the church today, this idea of we knew each other in the preexistence. We have this great romantic relationship where there's a lot of pressure in the church to have a very, very close, very, very um, intimate relationship, perfect. perfect relationship that goes on and you have to stay together forever and love each other. And, you know, you're your two halves to the whole and all that sort of stuff. I, it, nothing could be more opposite than polygamy, right? I don't know. I mean, did, didn't... Didn't this be- belief exist even with polygamy? I mean, I, I think I remember reading that that Joseph would approach women and say, you know, you have always been my spiritual wife. You, that, this We were together in the preexistence. Not that I know of, Glenn. You know, everything okay. I've read, there's really these the notion of, of um, like um, dynasty, of, of, of these building kingdoms. And, and you know, mm-hmm. this whole thing that... that there's another fascinating thing we probably need to do a whole podcast on on the Emma and Joseph retelling because the, in the church in the past 20 years has been this hyper romanticization of that relationship and you know Joseph was out bonking 16 year olds at the time you know and it's just this I I I see it as an overreaction to the idea because polygamy's still there it's still in the church handbook of instruction it's still in DNC 132 and and I think. It, uh, we overreact by having this hyper romantic love. I think that once you get rid of polygamy and you're left with just two people who are sealed together forever, then it becomes, you know, that it, every focus is on that relationship. And so, and plus, popular culture has really gone romantic. Yeah, yeah. but the church. I think you see that. it outside of the church just as much as you see it in the church. It's it's outside the church, but I think the church has gone to the nth degree. I mean, the church has taken it and run with it. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're giving polygamy way well, too much it, credit in this. <laughs> but it was latter 19th century that this idea of true love uh, as a way to justify human sexuality or the sex act really started to take hold. And I think that permeated uh, within Mormon uh, culture or ideas within the Mormon community, and it's it's sort of lingered. We see that with uh, Saturday's Voyeur that the genitals, yes, they are reproductive machines, uh, but we also need a true love by true men and women uh, in order to justify, in order to make the sex act appropriate or good or acceptable. Now we we should point out since we're going through the history that, and unfortunately we don't have time, but you can't the the whole. Saturday's Warrior is really sort of a retelling of the Nephi Anderson novel added upon, which was published in 1898. So the idea of these people moving from pre-existence to mortal life and then on to the eternities for their, their just desserts. Hmm. Um, 
was you know oh. really sort of introduced back then. And eighteen ninety eight, I mean that's that's really when you're just seeing to, to argue with Glenn some more, those gears meshing out of out of polygamy and Mormons looking to reestablish a new identity. Yeah, a new mm-hmm. way to look at marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'll give you half credit. You, you pulled you pulled out a really cool uh, obscure source there, so you get credit for that. But come on. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, um, another thing that my family did—I forgot to mention this one—is when my brother got home from his mission, um, we had them announce that he was returning in in glo- uh, triumphant glory from a soul-saving mission. So we took—I mean, this was our culture. And we wanted to be that family. We wanted to, uh, you when, know, act it out. When, when I got back from my mission and I walked off the plane, my mom, who's the oldest of eight, had all of her brothers and sisters and, like, my cousins there in, in those little Groucho Marx glasses that they actually use in the video, <laughs> you, know, or, you know, in the daddy's nose thing. And I don't know if they were doing it on purpose for the the Saturday's Warrior thing or if they just thought that that would be something stupid to do, but it was. Now, now, I said something at the beginning I, I feel I have to justify. I said that I really like Saturday's Warrior. We seem yeah. like we've been, been – I mean, we've been um, yeah. seeking it here. You have but, been. I've been trying to prop up Pam and – man. <laughs> I think everybody, after they get baptized and take the discussions, should watch Saturday's Warrior. And everybody who really wants to understand Mormonism, even though they probably won't understand it at first, it, it, it really sort of encapsulates sort of the the – the whole ideal of of who Mormons identify themselves are and how they see themselves in the cosmos. And let's look at the words to the, you know, to the main song again. Strangers from a realm of light, we have forgotten all. The memory of their former life, the purpose of their... Fall. Of their fall. Oh, sorry. I thought it was I'm call. Reading. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was call. Oh, I thought it was... The purpose of their... Oh, it's in the first verse, it's call. In the second oh, one, it's fall. There you go. Oh, they rhyme. Okay. Watch. It's fall. It's call. It's call. Oh, and so they must learn why they're here and who they really are. They must learn why they're here and who they really are. So, I mean, that that's an important theme um, that that we are beings that to transcend what we are in this life. What, wasn't and the there music's movie? great. I mean, the music really yeah. is great. It is catchy, Some except for mm-hmm. my yeah. least favorite one is. This is the summer of fair weather. Oh, come on. It's great. This is the summer of fair weather. And I know a place where we can get it together. We'll get it together whenever you're ready to go. Open your mind and hear me, brother. Out of this love and truth for us to discover. That one deserves a really close look. In fact, you know, John, you mentioned before we started recording that you've been listening to this, you know, in the car for the last week. And so have I. And I've had my kids in with me. Um, and so I, I kind of broke down summer of fair weather to them. And I, and I said, OK, why fair weather? Why did they choose fair weather? Because they're introducing that these are fair weather friends. And then I had to explain the expression to them. And then then we went through all of the little catchphrases in there that that identify that these are bad people because they're saying open your minds and And, you know you don't want people to open their minds if you you hear that you know okay something's going on here they're they're saying to open your mind and you know um out there there's love and truth for us to discover you know you can do your own thing 
and still you're loved like a brother? No, that's totally against what the church is. You shouldn't be able to do your own thing and still you're loved like a brother? No, you got to do what the church says. You got to be obedient and that's how you get loved like a brother. So I, I broke it down for my kids. It was fun. And, and this this goes to my point. I mean, the 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 caric- of course a play is caricature yeah. and the caricatures of the missionaries and of of the the notions about romantic love, the notions about the outside world, um, of the golden contact and all that, it all plays out. It, it's so, and that's why it's at such an enduring life. Yeah. Um, that's, it's still so popular, even though some of the things we mentioned are dated. It really mm. does. I mean, I, I, I really think Doug Stewart was masterful yeah. in the way he, he wrote it and the way they tied it all together. And, and I, I, you know, uh, it's, everybody should be required to see it. I, I, I do believe that. Listen to it, not see it. <laughs> well, if you listen to it, you, it, it, there's something's missing. Like um, Jimmy is not as featured in the music as he is in the play. Um, so yeah. you miss a lot of the Jimmy interaction. Because um, I, I was listening to the music. I'm like, why, why is this thing so much about Jimmy? The music's not. Because there's more of the romantic music. There's more Todd and Julie in the, in the soundtrack than there is the, of the Jimmy. And really, I'd guess 60% of the, of the stage time is devoted to Jimmy and his story. Well, and I think thinking about seeing it is kind of sad because you are limited to just the DVD. I, we have this loss of the theatrical tradition within the Mormon community where there used to be these active road shows or yeah. stage pro, or stake productions where people would put on Saturday's Warrior and you could be familiar with these different kinds of musical. Our stake chose Oklahoma. I think I would have preferred Saturday's Warrior over I, uh, Oklahoma is not my favorite musical. My, my sister-in-law um, got but, yeah, to do but, it about five years ago though in in california their stake did it and and so my my kids have seen it from from them from from uh oh, their, oh this is fantastic so it's yeah. so yeah so i haven't been to church in years so yeah. right i was i was wondering if uh if this theatrical or like ward activities or stake productions are still going on all i know is my brother's church they took out the stage of the church and remodeled it into storage oh. area and and classrooms so i was like oh wow. that's kind of sad i guess it's sad lost... both classrooms are needed yeah well yeah. I, I met a couple weeks ago in a podcast that um, you know, it breaks my heart when I go into the buildings and see the potential there. The state, especially the older stake centers, you see those stages. And you know, we put on when I was a kid. I wasn't in it, but my my father really helped out a whole production of um, Camelot. And yeah. the old stake centers have you know the full facilities yeah. to do that sort of production. And and theater was such an important part of Mormon culture. And it's been heartbreaking for me to watch that sort of dry up under correlation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. We can't. We can't end on that. <laughs> no, I, Saturday's, Saturday's Warrior, uh, wonderful. Um, every, everyone should see it. Any uh, any other last thoughts? I heard Shelley, the second to last child, uh, is she one of the musical uh, singers for the group Shadaisy? Yeah, I've heard that from multiple sources. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that online too. Uh, so she's gone on to a, a great career. I like a lot of Shadezi stuff. We've been we've been trying to track down some of the um, actors, and maybe in for future podcasts we'll be successful and uh, uh, getting them on and, and finding out where they are and uh, what happened to them. I'm still looking for the original iconic Jimmy. I know um, he he went on a mission after he did the big tour of Salt Lake. He he. If you see the old posters of Saturday's Warrior, you, there there's this iconic 
painting of a guy looking down, holding a sword with a big Jufro. And uh, <laughs> he, he went on a mission, then he came back, and he, he was a very talented cartoonist, and he did a cartoon book about uh, missionaries. I know my dad has it somewhere in his stack, so I was trying to find it. I couldn't find it, but it'd be interesting to find out yeah. where, where these people have, 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 have gone to. He's not very young anymore. That's didn't, No, he would have been 18 or 19 back in 74. I, I think that Larry King's wife or former wife was a cast member of, on the original production. The, of the original production? Yeah, yeah. I, I was looking up the name. It, it, I know, but like starting Saturday's Warrior Rumors. Uh, I, yeah. I'm so, sorry. I wish I remembered the name because I, I was Googling it because I was, I was trying to find who the original Pam was because I was kind of in love with her voice when, when I was a missionary. Yeah. That kind of filled the, the void for me. Yeah, the, orig- the original Pam from the, the 74 cast. She, she was also on My Turn on Earth. And uh, I, think, I think I remember reading once that she and, and her brother was the, the bad guy. And then he was also the Lucifer in My Turn on Earth. And I think that they both did that. But I don't, I don't remember what their names were. Oh, well, I do have to mention that the, the, le- the gang leader, yeah. he was pretty hot in the movie. The 89 movie. And why did he yeah. have... I just wonder why he had such an interest in Jimmy. <laughs> why so much effort for Jimmy? Do, do you have any theories on that, Travis? There was a erotic vibe. I caught that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought because because the actor played Jimmy, he looked sort of you know every kiddish, you know, and the, the everybody else they were all dancers, you know, so they they were all like exotic and lean and. It's like, well, why do these kids want, want Jimmy? <laughs> was he out there recruiting? Because I, I heard that they recruit. <laughs> That's what I heard. Uh, all right. As, as always, the discussion continues on the website at mormonexpression.com. You can uh, uh, send us a mail at mail at mormonexpression.com or call our number 801-906-6722. And don't forget to check out our Amazon store and find out what books are coming up and... Uh, other things we talked about. I just, I just think that you know, you guys are like Jimmy. Your, your, your problem is that you want all the answers right now. <laughs> all right, as, uh, as always. Well, wait, hang on, hang on, John. You're not going to yeah. let me sing my song. Oh yeah. Are you ready yes, for yes. this? Oh, I'm. Started yeah, I've been, I've been ready. Suggestion. Let's hear it, brother. So, so, you know, this is this is me kind of wondering, you know, what would the the liberal political issues be that draws Jimmy away from his family today, you know? And uh, I think it's same, wouldn't they? No, because it, it wouldn't be zero population and worrying. I mean, like maybe maybe global warming, you know, <laughs> would be something or like social justice. See, you I know. still took it as embarrassment over his, his large Mormon family and all the... Maybe. Okay. <clears throat> Every day the world is getting smarter by far. 
Intellectual, we're too smart for you. Metaphoric, scriptural interpretation is the answer, my friends. Without it, our brains will turn to goo. Who can survive? Who can survive? Bronze's beliefs don't jive. Opposable thumb, opposable thumb, Adam and Eve's just dumb, 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 dumb. All the chicks should go to work and have a career. Housewife soccer mom's just not for me. Prayers to mom in heaven is the answer, my friend. Without it, lame patriotic key. Who can survive? Who can survive? Relief society lengthen stride. Who can be wrong? Who can be wrong? Priesthood don't need a schlong. Travesty, our civil rights are trampled each day. Legislating hate crimes just so crass. Do -do 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 -do. Legalized gay marriage is the answer, my friends. Without it, there is no peace of... <coughs> <laughs> who can survive? Who can survive? Our lovely Deseret stood up the hive. Who can be strong? Who can be strong? Prop it was just so wrong. Intellectual feminist anti-homophobia is the answer, my friend. Without it, the rest of us are through. How's that? <laughs> Very nice. I think I like the first Bravo. better. I, I think I like the first version better when you guys were laughing. I felt a little. I felt a little self-conscious doing it this time. Just like. Oh, I was trying to be quiet so there'd be a good recording of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great.